Right, we're uh, getting there. Uh, last of uh, the talks. And what we're going to look at now, we're looking at the significance of the Lord's Supper and now the third area of its significance is its future aspect. Because the love feast also looks forward to something. We've seen it looks back to what Jesus has done, but it looks forward to something as well. And let's read Luke 22. Back to Luke. Luke 22. And there may well be some, you know, stuff here that is uh, maybe new to your thinking. Um, Luke 22, let's read verse 14 through to 20. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst you. For I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. Remember, he didn't drink the fourth cup. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now go back to 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul recounts what Jesus had told him about the Last Supper. 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now we saw in an earlier talk that the Old Testament Passover, and remember the Lord's Supper is the new, is the new covenant equivalent of the Passover, right? And we saw that with the Passover it looked back to Israel's deliverance from Egypt. But it looked forward as well. And initially it looked forward to them actually getting into the Promised Land. But then... Once they were in the Promised Land, it looked forward to the coming of Messiah. So the Passover, as well as looking back at something, always looked forward to a future event, whatever it was, as well. And we saw that the Lord's Supper was against the backdrop of three other meals. One of them being future. We had the Passover, cup number one. We have the Lord's Supper, sorry, the Last Supper, cup number two, the Lord's Supper, cup number three, and then number four, the one that Jesus didn't drink, represented the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that is future. And Jesus didn't drink the fourth cup, and he said, but I'll drink it with you then, when the kingdom of God came. Now, let's see this in more detail in Scripture. We've seen the Passover, that was past. We've seen the Last Supper, that is past. We've seen the Lord's Supper, that continues. But there's this other feast that hasn't happened yet. It's yet in the future. And we need to have a look at it. And if you go to Matthew chapter 8, I'm going to go through um, a string of scriptures now. Matthew chapter 8. And verse 11. And Jesus says this, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. 
Now there is Jesus saying that there's going to come a time when east and west, the world will come and sit down and feast and Abraham and Isaac and that will be there. That hasn't happened yet. Because it's in the future. Go to Luke 13. Luke chapter 13, verse 29. Again, this is Luke's account, but let's see it. Jesus said, People will come from east and west, north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. That hasn't happened yet. But it's going to happen one day. Go to Matthew 22. And I'm not going to read it all because we don't need to. But what we have here is the parable of the wedding blanket. <laughs> Did I say blanket? <laughs> Sorry about that. The wedding banquet. It's been a long day. <laughs> and when Jesus tells this parable about people coming to the wedding banquet and someone being thrown out because they haven't been invited and stuff like that, the reason that he uses this parable is precisely because one day such a banquet is going to happen. Parables may well involve fictitious people, but the settings are quite literal. And so the parables about this wedding feast that's going to happen is quite literal. The wedding feast will happen when Jesus comes again. Go to uh, Luke 22. Luke 22 and uh, verses 29 to 30. Um, uh, I lost it. Yes, and he says, I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's not talking about the love feast. That's talking about this banquet that Jesus said when he will eat and drink with us again when the kingdom comes. And then if you go to Matthew 25, Matthew 25 and verses 1 to 13, again we won't read it, but you get there the famous parable of the ten virgins, and of course, what does it all revolve around? A groom coming with his bride and a marriage feast that you can only get into if you've got oil in your lamp. What's the oil in the lamp? It's the Holy Spirit, the oil. Oh, Holy Spirit, born again. If you're a believer, you will be at that future feast. And this is the fourth feast that the Lord's Supper, Supper prefigures. The fourth cup, the one that is still future. Now obviously when we have the Lord's Supper, when you gather as a church and you eat that meal, Jesus is not physically present with you. He doesn't eat and drink with you when you gather. And remember as well that any individual church is the merest fraction of the totality of the church universal or the church throughout space and time as I like to think of it. But at this coming marriage supper of the Lamb which is just after the second coming when Jesus comes back then Jesus will be present physically and he will eat and drink and also at that marriage supper of the Lamb Every believer throughout space and time will be there. The church universal will be present. And the reason that Jesus said he wasn't going to drink with the disciples again was because, in effect, he was saying, I have just shared a meal with the whole church. He was with the apostles. At that point, really, that was the whole church in embryo. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to eat and drink with you again until the whole church is gathered again. And the whole church won't be gathered again 
until Jesus returns to earth. Now, in the same way, we saw earlier that the Holy Spirit is, if you like, the down payment, the guarantee of the fact that we will get our full salvation. Eventually, we will end up glorified, we'll have glorified bodies, and one day we will be free from the very presence of sin. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment now that guarantees that we will get there. Now, in exactly the same way, the church love feast prefigures this marriage supper of the Lamb at the second coming. If you go with me to Ephesians 1, Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll read verses 11 to 14. Ephesians 1, verse 11 to 14. We've already seen this, but we'll see it again. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's the parties in the covenant, or those who are called. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So there Paul is saying, we have the Holy Spirit now. He's the beginning of us receiving the inheritance and also he's the guarantee that we will one day come into the full inheritance. And that will be when we are glorified just like Jesus. Go to Romans 8. Romans 8 and verse 22 and 23. He says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. So we have the first fruits of the Spirit, and this guarantees that one day our very bodies will be redeemed. That when Jesus returns, we will get glorified bodies, and then we will be free from the very presence of sin. We will be sinless, just like Jesus. And the fact we have the Holy Spirit now is the guarantee that that will happen. Now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And what we're trying to see here is in the same way that this prefigures what I'm going to call our future salvation, the love feast prefigures the feast that will happen then when our full salvation has come. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll read verses 1 to 5. Now we know that if the earthly tent in which we live is destroyed... Now do you remember the tabernacle? That was a tent. And we saw that when it talked about Jesus being the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, the Greek word for dwelling there, dwelt, means a tent. And the reason for that is in the New Testament, your body is pictured as a tent. So you're living in a tent. Why is it called a tent? Well, in the wilderness, the tents were temporary. Because once Israel got to Canaan, they lived in houses. The body you've got now is temporary. It's defiled with sin and it is dying. But one day you're going to get another one which will last forever. So he says, if the, early tent, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. This is the glorified body we're going to get. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. We were designed to be physical. Salvation 
being with the Lord in glory, the eternal state is not disembodiment. The eternal state is not being less physical. If anything, it's being more physical. We will have a glorified body just like Jesus has got since he rose again from the dead. And Paul says, For while we are in this tent, we groan and we're burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. What is it that is to come that will complete our salvation? It's when we eventually get glorified bodies and are delivered from the very presence of sin. Go to 1 John chapter 3. And we're seeing all the time the fact that we have the Holy Spirit, that is the guarantee that having started, God will finish this. We're into salvation already, but it will be completed. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, all right? And in 1 John 3 verse 2, John says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. We're already children of God. We're already into salvation, but there is yet more to come. And he says, And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, this is the second coming, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do you know there's a day that's going to come, and it may be after you're dead, or it may be you'll we'll still be alive. It doesn't matter. But that day's going to come where we will see Jesus as he actually is in all his glory. And when we do, we will be so taken up with that glory that we shall find ourselves in bodies just like his. And in the same way that he has a resurrection glorified body, one day we are going to have one as well. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What is Jesus like? He's in a physically glorified body. And this is the future salvation that we as yet look forward to. And remember that we're seeing that the love feast also looks forward to this other feast that is going to happen when all the saints are glorified just like Jesus. And glorified we shall sit on this earth in Jesus' kingdom and we will all eat and drink together with him. Now go back to Luke 22. And now we're going to home in on the verses that we saw in Luke 22 and 1 Corinthians 11. And it's this. It's when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Now we've seen what the this is. It's eating a meal together and having that loaf and that cup as part of that meal. That's the this. But what we want to home in on now is that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Now I once again defer to the experts who know what they're talking about and that the construction of the Greek there can literally be read like this. Do this with a view to my remembrance. Now I'll say that again, literal translation. Do this with a view to my remembrance. Now Jesus having said that, it seems to me, and to lots of other people as well, that that can be taken in one of two ways. And I want to put it to you that it's deliberately ambiguous, that we're meant to take it both ways. The first way is that it can mean, and this is the traditional understanding, us remembering Jesus. So that in the Lord's Supper, we're remembering Jesus. We're looking to Jesus, we're looking to what he's done for us. And that's fine. 
because that is part and parcel of what the love feast is. We look back to what Jesus has done on the cross and we look to Jesus as the guest of honour at that meal. It is, after all, his supper. But the other way such a statement can be taken is this. It's Jesus remembering us. So that when Jesus says, do this with a view to my remembrance, it could be that Jesus is saying, when you do this, I will remember you. It will strike off a memory in me. So we're saying that the remembrance is actually Jesus's. When we eat the love feast, we put him in remembrance about something. And therefore, we're looking forward to a something we want Jesus to remember. And of course, we're looking forward and proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. Now, if this is correct, and I believe it is, it's saying to the Lord in the love feast, Lord, you're not with us physically yet. But Lord, come back for your people. Return to earth. So what I'm saying is that one aspect of the Lord's Supper is that it's an acted out prayer for the second coming. An acted out prayer saying, Lord, come back and get your people. Lord, come back and drink that fourth cup with us. So in effect, what Jesus is saying here is, Hey guys, the Passover looked forward to me coming for the first time. Do you remember initially the Passover looked forward to getting into Canaan? But once they were there, then it looked forward to coming of Messiah. So Jesus is saying the Passover looked forward to something and it was my, my coming. And what Jesus is saying right now with the love feast, I'm here. Now look forward to my second coming. So what I'm saying here is that part of what the love feast is about, we've seen that it draws our attention to our individual relationship with Jesus. Am I right with the Lord? The other side of that coin is it draws my attention to my relationship with my brothers and sisters, the corporate aspect. But it also draws my attention to the fact that one day Jesus is coming back I'm going to show you that the Bible actually tells us that we should be praying for the second coming and that this, the love feast, is an acted out prayer with the saying, Lord, remember to come back. Now, that shouldn't be a strange concept to you. I can understand that it is at first, but if you think about it, it isn't. Say, what, Beresford, what we're saying? You know, Jesus remembers something, but... God knows everything anyway. We, well, yeah, of course, He does. But Scripture's full of, of you know, of the Lord remembering things, not because He'd forgotten. It's a turn of phrase. But if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and let me show you why this shouldn't be a strange idea, and why this aspect of the love feast, even though it might be new to you, is perfectly fitted with other Scriptures that say it blatantly. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. And Paul says, If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord. Paul there, Paul often puts prayers in his letters. And here he puts a prayer in, Jesus, come back. The love feast is an acted out prayer for Jesus to come back. Go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, start reading from verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3, and from verse 10. And Peter says this, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. So here we're talking about, you know, when the Lord comes back, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Or in some translations, 
hasten the day of the Lord. So there, Peter is talking about when the day of the Lord comes and Jesus comes back, and then he says, hey guys, hasten, it's coming. Well, that's hard for us to understand. I mean, the day is either set or it isn't, which according to Jesus it seems to be. But nevertheless, here we see Paul saying, Lord, come back. And we see Peter saying, hasten the coming of the Lord. So this idea of us actually having this concept of speeding up the second coming, praying for it, Having a love feast that is an acted out prayer for it is entirely consistent with the rest of Scripture. Think of it. The New Testament begins with the Gospel of Matthew. What is the Gospel of Matthew solely and purely about? The first coming of Jesus. Which book does the New Testament end with? The book of Revelation. What is the climax of the book of Revelation? Jesus' second coming. The New Testament begins with his first coming and it ends with his second coming. Alright? Go to Revelation chapter 22. Verse 20 to 21. I'm now going to read you the last two verses of the New Testament. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. The second from last verse of the New Testament is a prayer from the Apostle John saying, Jesus, please come back. The idea of, of praying for Jesus to return is a completely biblical idea. Go back into verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Centering us on the fact Jesus is coming back. We shouldn't forget that. We should live in the light of that. We live in the light of two things. The first coming of Jesus and we live in the light of his second coming as well. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. So a certain occupation and looking forward with a Jesus come back and get us is completely biblical. And of course, we saw in Revelation 19 and 20 that this feast, this marriage supper of the Lamb is directly tied in. It is what happens, well there are many things that happen when Jesus comes back, but one of the things that happen is this feast that we will all have with Jesus, only then the entire church throughout space and time being present and Jesus eating with us and drinking with us, quite literally, the fourth cup. And so therefore what we're seeing is, yes, the love feast makes us look back to the death and resurrection of Jesus, yes. But it also directs our attention forward to events that haven't happened yet when Jesus actually returns. Now, as we put this, the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle, into place, I want to show you what has now emerged. We're seeing that salvation, just like the significance of the love feast has three aspects to it. Past, present, and future. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, let's look at past salvation. Past salvation is to be set free from the penalty of sin. And it's past salvation because if so be you have believed in Jesus, it's a done deal. It's in the past. You were born again when you believed in Jesus. The moment you were born again, you were what the Bible calls justified. 
So your past salvation is justification by faith. And think of it like this. It's justified, never sinned. So this past salvation is once and for all, it's over and done with, and it is freedom, it is deliverance from the penalty of sin. Now, present salvation is what the Bible refers to as sanctification. And this is present salvation because it's going on moment by moment. It's a present tense thing. If justification is being delivered from the penalty of sin, then present salvation is the process of being delivered from the power of sin in our lives. Now then, if we go back to past salvation, being set free from the penalty of sin, that was through Jesus' death. When he died on the cross, our salvation was secured. So we were justified because Jesus died. And that was what the Bible calls righteousness imputed. So it meant that all we had to our account was sin. And God took all the sin out of our bank account, put it all in Jesus' bank account, took all, all Jesus' righteousness out of his bank account and put it in our bank account. And he looked at it, he says, right, you're righteous. You can come into heaven. You're right with me. That is justification. By Jesus' death, and it's righteousness imputed. But when we look at this present salvation, sanctification, this is freedom from the power of sin. And this is through not Jesus' death, it's through Jesus' resurrection. Because he's alive and he lives in us. And whereas justification was righteousness imputed, Present salvation, sanctification, is righteousness imparted. Because Jesus is alive, because he lives in us, we can actually be holy. Well, not us, but Jesus in and through us. But the other aspect of salvation that will complete the whole thing is what I call future salvation. And future salvation because you're going to get a glorified body, and because you'll have lost this one, okay, therefore future salvation is freedom not from the penalty of sin, not from the power of sin, but our future salvation when we get glorified bodies will be when we are set free from the very presence of sin. And we will have glorified bodies like Jesus. And this is glorification. So our salvation is justification, sanctification, that's going on now, and glorification, that is the ultimate inheritance we're going to come into. Now we saw justification was by Jesus' death, righteousness imputed. Our sanctification, freedom from the power of sin, is through Jesus' life, and that is righteousness imparted. But our glorification will be through Jesus' return. And that will be righteousness perfected. Because we will be just like Jesus. So here we have salvation, past, present and future. Now let's carry that over and put it alongside what we've seen about the love feast. Past salvation, justification, set free from the penalty of sin, that is our own personal forgiveness and ongoing relationship with the Lord. What we saw as the individual aspect. At the love feast, I look back at what Jesus did on the cross for me so that I could be set free from the penalty of sin. I'm going to heaven, not the lake of fire. Now, present salvation is to do with what God's doing in me now. And it's setting me free not from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. Now, how did we see that God partially does that? Through our fellowship with each other. 
through ongoing relationships, through knowing when we've got to say sorry to someone. That's a big part of the process. So therefore, present salvation, sanctification, is represented in the love feast by its corporate aspect. And now we've looked at future salvation. We've said one day we're going to be glorified. We're going to get glorified bodies. We are going to be set free, not just from the penalty of sin, not just from the power of sin, but then we will be set free from the very presence of sin. And we're seeing that the love feast prefigures the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is the feast that will happen once we've got our glorified bodies. So can you see that in the love feast, what we ultimately have represented is every aspect of our salvation, past, present and future. And that really makes me want to say, wow, how about that? That is incredible. That is what the love feast is all about. It's personal aspect, it's corporate aspect, and as we've seen, it's future aspect. Because what Jesus came 2,000 years to start what Jesus is now, moment by moment, continuing, he is going to come back to earth one day to utterly and totally complete. Now, I'm going to start winding up now, okay? And if you go to Acts 20, and there are just uh, one or two other things that we've still got to see here. Acts chapter 20, and uh, this is um, an important verse here. Acts chapter 20, and it's something that um, Luke writes. Acts 20, and we're going to read verse 7 and then verse 11. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. So they've come together to break bread. Again, no scholar worth his salt would challenge that this is talking about the Lord's Supper. I mean, in, in Scripture, the phrase break bread just means to have a meal. That's what it meant. That's how the Jews, you know, it's that like, come break bread. It meant having a meal. And only that. It was a Jewish idiom for eating together. But here, scholars seem to be agreed that this is talking about the Lord's Supper. Okay. And uh, then if you go down into verse 17, um, Paul was with them and, and, and chatting with them for quite a long time. No, sorry, verse 11. And uh, in the meantime, he, they talked and talked and talked together. And in your versions, it tends to create the idea that Paul was preaching to them all night. The actual Greek word is, means dialogue. Paul was teaching them by talking with them, right? Because this was a main gathering of the church. When you come together, each one has. The idea wasn't for one person to be doing everything. It was dialogue. It was participation. And uh, remember, one guy fell out the window and died, and so Paul raised him from the dead, and that was quite an evening. And then in verse 11, then he went upstairs again, broke bread and ate. So, I mean, it was after midnight before they had the love feast, okay? But the main thing that I want to hold uh, home in on here is that the Greek, and again, I throw myself on the scholars, all right, um, you know, because it's all, all Greek to me. Um, and this, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Now, the way that the Greek is constructed there, so the experts tell me, um, is, is firstly, this first day of the week thing comes across as, as not just what they did then, but kind of that was their habitual habit. But when it talks about to break bread, the way the sentence is constructed is that the breaking of bread was the main reason for them coming together. So what we see quite simply there, yeah, we've seen that when a church comes together, there's the Lord's Supper and there's the open sharing participatory time, edifying each other and worship and stuff like that. But what we see in Scripture is that the main reason for coming together is the Lord's Supper. So if nothing else happens, that should happen. 
Okay, so, so with everything that we've seen about the Lord's Supper, of course it's the main reason that we come together. Because in having the Lord's Supper as a meal, we are together celebrating everything that Jesus has done for us. The totality of our salvation, past, present and future. The fact that when Jesus died, he named us in his will, he's left us his inheritance, and we've got some of it now, We'll have more tomorrow than we've got today, but when Jesus comes back and we're glorified, we'll have it all. So, of course, that's the main reason why we come together. And, of course, let me say as well, that, uh, you know, what I was saying earlier, if you do things unbiblically, you get the opposite. When you read about the Lord's Supper and it prefigures the marriage supper of the Lamb and what we're seeing, this is, this is believers eating together in celebration of what Jesus has done for them and, and the way he's called us together as one big family. What is the atmosphere? What is the emotional push behind it? Is it morbid introspection? No, it could not be. That is the opposite to what it is. This is joyous outward looking to the Lord and other people. This is party time. This is not, you know, kind of everyone, all holy moment, there at me, eyes. It's not, this is celebration. This is prefiguring a wedding feast. This is joy time. This is fun time. And any kind of introspection with, oh, you know, Lord, forgive me for this, forgive me for that. Paul works on the assumption we've done that before we get there. We're doing that all the time. That's our private prayer time. There is a place for me to be introspective and to mourn for my sins. Yes, of course there is, but not at the love feast. That's the place we celebrate our forgiveness. So the atmosphere is one of joy, is one of celebration, is one of family celebrating together. Now let me just say a little bit about the mechanics of it. You know, and all I can do is to speak for how we do it as a church back home, because people say, well look, hey, how do you do it? So all I can tell you is how we do it. Now remember, what we're seeing is the Lord's Supper is the cup and the loaf as part of the meal. So the Lord's Supper is the food plus the bread and the cup. Together, that is the Lord's Supper. It's not that the bread and the wine is the Lord's Supper and then you have a meal as well. The whole thing. And what distinguishes this from an ordinary meal is the presence of the bread and the cup. That's what distinguishes it, okay. So, you know, because as it were, the bread and the cup is, is there, that Jesus is not with you physically, as it were, but the bread and, and, and the cup, that is the symbol of his presence. He's with you literally, but he's not with you physically. So the cup and the loaf are there representing his presence. And the way that we do it, and I'm not saying this is the way you should do it, I'm just, you know, people some say, well, how do you do it, okay? And the way that we do it is that we have, we have the food there, kind of potluck, as you say over there um, in the States, and, and, you know, in the States, and, and you, the food is, is kind of here in the States, I should say. And, uh, you know, the food is just laid out in the kitchen or whatever, and we just queue up and we, we get the food. And, uh, but what we do is we have the loaf and we have the cup, or, you know, we tend to have it in separate cups. Some people say, oh, that's terrible, there should be one cup. I mean, it doesn't seem to matter to us, but I'm just saying how we do it right or wrong. And so what we do is we grab some of the bread and we take some of the juice and we have that as part of our meal. So we put that on the tray and then you go and get the whatever food you're going to have, all right? And so we just, you know, obviously, before we, we eat, we focus on it, remind ourselves what it's all about, and obviously give thanks for the food. But that's how we do it. The, you know, the juice is there. The, we have juice, not wine. That really matters to some people. It doesn't to us. I'm just telling you how we do it. And, uh, you know, so we just, you know, the juice and the bread, and, and then we go get the meal, and we have it all together. And, and our kind of understanding of it is that, you know, through our time together, some people might drink tea, some people might drink coffee, some people might have orange juice or something like that. And when you come to get the food, one person might have beef, some person might have cauliflower cheese, another, i.e., when it comes to eating and drinking, 
I mean, because there's a selection there, everyone's eating and drinking different things, which is absolutely fine. But the point about the loaf and the cup, that is the food and drink we all have in common. That is our unity in Jesus. So therefore, for us, it's an ordinary meal in the sense that it's ordinary food, but the presence of the loaf and the cup, and because we know Jesus is with us and that we share that in common, that is what mixes the whole thing together and through the presence of the Spirit makes it the Lord's Supper. All right? That, the fact that we all eat the bread and all eat the drink, eat, drink the juice, I've got the wrong teeth in today, that is our unity in the Lord, that is the symbolism of the meal. Now let's, let's just go through some scriptures here, go to John 17 and just remind ourselves how vitally important this is. John 17 and uh, verse 23, and this is Jesus praying, he says, I in them, and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity. This is what Alan was sharing earlier. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Unity between believers. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And while we're reading this about unity, I've got to take you back to the corporate aspect of the Lord's Supper. Am I right with my brothers and sisters? This is at the heart of it. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Not create it, keep it, it's there. The Holy Spirit is present because we're believers. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Can you see unity between believers and as I'm saying the bread and the cup sharing that in common is the unity we have go to Colossians I'm going to show you a real zinger in a moment but we'll do Colossians first Colossians 3 verse 12 to 14 therefore as God's chosen people holy and dearly loved clothe yourselves with compassion kindness humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Do you think this is the corporate aspect of the Lord's Supper? Just a bit I do. And he says, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You see, unity, unity. Paul is writing to churches here, and he says, you should all in the church be united. Not necessarily agreeing on absolutely everything, but the point is, there's no dislocation with those varied understandings. Somebody holding a different doctrinal position to you, if only you could feel secure in the Lord, can be a blessing to you, it shouldn't be a threat. And even if you look at other positions that others have, even if you say, no, I'm not convinced yet, well, you will have learned something from a different point of view. And if you do look at something that another brother or sister holds that you don't agree with, and you look at it again, you think, good grief, I see it now. Yes, that was right all along. 
Can you see? Don't let doctrinal variations ever prevent your unity. They needn't. They can enhance it. I mean, in our church back home, I mean, we're not necessarily particularly theologically aware as people or anything like that. But when it comes to different doctrines and things, we all have different understandings about things. There are no end of issues where we all have a different perspective and sometimes downright disagree with each other. I'll tell you what, that has strengthened us. We don't feel the need to make each other agree with us all the time. This is not the unity of having to agree with each other in everything. It's the unity of all your different understandings and perspectives. Let that enhance your fellowship. Don't let it destroy it. Let it enhance your fellowship. And so what we're seeing here is unity, unity, unity. And you drink that cup. You eat that love. And that is your unity. Now here comes the zinger. Go to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. If this doesn't get you scratching your head, I'm not saying it right. <laughs> okay. But I think this is amazing. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 down to 17. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? This is Paul talking about the love feast. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. In verse 17, I've just read something that is astounding. But we're so familiar with it, we miss it. So I'll read it again. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one loaf. Paul says our unity is because there's one loaf there. Now don't ask me to explain that, but Paul says, do you want unity? Get that loaf there. I mean, you know, can you see it? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. He doesn't say the presence of the loaf merely represents our unity. He says it is our unity. Don't ask me to explain it, but I believe it because that really does seem to be what the Bible says. So what I'm saying is that when you partake of the Lord's Supper, that when you do this thing biblically, the fact that you all share that bread, the fact that you all share that cup, and assuming that you're doing it in sincerity and truth, and not like the Corinthians, assuming you do the presence of the loaf and the cup will actually do something to you spiritually that will enhance your unity. But then... That shouldn't come as a surprise, should it? That the Lord has something there as a symbol, but then actually uses it to do something tangible and miraculous in your midst. Again, don't ask me to explain it, but it does seem to be what Scripture says. Now, some people would shy away from that, so, oh, Beres, but isn't that a bit close to saying that there's something magical about the elements? Well, yeah, no, that's the early fathers went down that road. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is Paul still says, because there's one loaf, we're one body. So let's just make sure the loaf is there, hey? Let's just make the cup is there. Now, in actual fact, for us as a church, for quite a few years, we misunderstood that. And we didn't have the cup and the loaf. We, we just kind of, we just saw it was the main meal. And we'd missed it completely. And, it, you know, it took others to, you know, say, hey, no, I'm not sure about that. And so we looked at it again and then saw it very, very clearly. But that is astounding because there's one loaf. We who are many are one body. So, oh, yeah, boy, the Lord does something through the presence of the loaf and through the presence of the cup. Okay, let's, let's summarise. Let's kind of wind it all up. In the New Testament, we see that New that the churches would come together, it seems, once a week on the Lord's Day. Some people would say, mm, no, don't see that, and fine, that's, you know, that's not the big deal. The rest of this is the big deal. That when churches came together, they shared a meal together. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, breaking of bread, whatever you want to call it. And they would do this in the context 
of open, spontaneous, free, participatory worship and sharing together. And they would do this in the home of one of the people who was part of that church. And, I mean, back home we rotate, so we meet in different houses at different times. The Lord's Supper, what we are seeing, is basically the extended family church meal. That is what the Lord's Supper is. What we do as individual biological families all week, we do as God's extended family once a week when we come together. We hang out together and we eat a meal together. It's as simple as that. How can I end? Well, there's a couple more verses that just for the sake of comprehensiveness, it would be good that we looked at. And they're going to give me the ending that I think I want to have here. So if you go to 2 Peter, chapter 2, just going to read verse 13. The context in both these scriptures is warning against divisive troublemakers who get into churches and try and destroy them. That's the background to it. Now, in verse 13, Peter says this, They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. Only a better translation is in your love feasts. And I just wanted to home in because, look, there's a verse, Peter assuming the churches were having love feasts. Now go to Jude, Jude and find verse 12. Similar thing, same people being mentioned. These men are blemishes at your love feasts. So I've been using the term love feast. We've seen all the others grounded in scripture, so I just wanted to show you that. Two places where the Bible talks about the churches having love feasts. So I'm going to end with a question for you, each of you, about your church life. And the question is this. Love feasts? What love feasts? My church has been going for 250 years, never had a love feast. What are you talking about? I'm talking about the normative practice of the early church. Again, there's not a Bible scholar of note, and we saw this in the earlier church, in, in the earlier talks, who would disagree with the simple fact that when the churches came together in the New Testament, they came together around love feasts, around the Lord's Supper, around the Lord's Table, and we've seen further that that is the biblically stated purpose for a church coming together. And yet, for over 1,800 years, 99.9999999, hang on, I'll work this out, 999, that's right, got that right, of churches don't have a love feast and wouldn't recognise one if they tripped over it in the street. So let's realise that when it comes to church life, what scripture puts at the very heart of church life, your average church, not just today but for 1800 years, doesn't even have. And I put it to you that that is a very big oops indeed. And when I started my Christian life, as I started to read the Bible, as I started to undergo the process of, of the Lord kind of renewing my mind through the truth of Scripture, one of the things that I was finding unnervingly often is that I would read something in the Bible and I'd say, oops, oh, better change there, Lord. Or, oops, that's not what I thought, Lord. Or, oops, not sure I agree with that. And then the Lord does his discipline. Okay, Lord, yes, I agree with that now. I agree with your word. So really, my Christian life has been putting one oops after another right. But I put it to you that the Christian church needs to come to terms with this because it's an oops 
that we really shouldn't still be oopsing over. It's time that we simply meet as biblical churches. And if the churches we're in are not going to do that, and believe me, most of them are not, then the simple truth is you've got a choice of staying in and doing things unbiblically or coming out and forming biblical churches and doing things biblically. I want to emphasize there, you must crawl over broken glass to remain in fellowship with the believers in unbiblical churches. They're our brothers and sisters. They're still churches. But all I'm saying is, once you see in Scripture the biblical way, then you're duty-bound before the Lord to do it. Okay, I think we'll call that a wrap.